Right now, more than 38,500 species are threatened with extinction. That's close to 30% of all known species in the world. As human-driven climate change and habitat loss accelerate, many scientists worry we might be in the middle of a mass extinction. Back in 2019, climate activist Greta Thunberg took world leaders to task and warned of the impending mass extinction during an impassioned speech at the United Nations. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the scientists working hard to save our planet's endangered species. First, the red colobus monkey. The red colobus monkey is one of the most endangered primates in the world. Found in West, East, and Central Africa, the once thriving species has been decimated by overhunting. Enter Josh Linder. He's devoted his career to studying and conserving these peaceful primates. Josh is an anthropology professor at James Madison University. Josh, you study the red colobus monkey. It's one of the most endangered primates in the world. Is it threatened with extinction, really? Yeah, um, there's 17 species of red colobus monkey, and they're all threatened with extinction. We measure extinction risk by looking at population size and geographic range. And of those 17 species, they're all classified as vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. And five of them are actually critically endangered, so pretty close to extinction. Are there places where the red colobus monkey has been in popular culture, you know, Tarzan movies or something that we don't realize this is that monkey? Yeah, you know, not really. And that's part of the problem. If I were to show you a picture of a gorilla or a chimpanzee, nearly everyone would say, oh, that's a gorilla or a chimp or an ape. And if I show a picture of a red colobus monkey, they just think, I I guess that's a monkey and I don't know anything more about it. So they're not in wildlife documentaries. They're not in museums. There's not a single red colobus monkey in any zoo uh, in the world. So it's it's hard to get the message out about the plight of, of, of these animals. Can you describe an adventure you had when you were actually on a research expedition looking for red colobus monkeys? Yeah, so um, one of the places where I work is in Cameroon in a park called Korup National Park. It's right on the Nigerian border. And we would hike in, and um, every day we would just, you know, do these foot surveys in the in the rainforest. And the red colobus in this forest is is fairly rare. Um, it used to be a lot more common. So you have to hike for a good amount of time. And it can get quite mountainous in some of these areas. So you're hiking up and down mountains looking for these primates. They're really good at leaping. And so and they occur in these very large groups often, maybe between 30 and 50, 60, 70 uh, individuals. And they kind of crash through the trees um, as they move around. And usually because they occur in these large groups, once you can locate them, you can get a good view of them, even though they're really high up in the canopy. I read that the monkeys actually have a very distinct smell. You could smell them even if you didn't see them. Yeah, that's true. For red colobus monkeys, and my field assistants are a lot better at this than I am, um, <laughs> they will sometimes say, hold on a minute, I smell red colobus. And it's a certain, I'm not sure if it's like a sweet smell or, or what, but uh, usually soon after they say that, we will hear or see red colobus monkeys. And it's not like any other primate species, at least in the forest I work in. They won't say, oh, I smell putty-nosed monkey or mangabee. They'll say, I smell red colobus monkey. What are they like? They're really interesting animals. They're fascinating, in fact. Um, Colobus monkeys uh, have uh, stomachs are similar to that of cows in that they're multi-chambered and they they house a bunch of microorganisms in their stomachs and helps them to digest hard-to-digest foods like leaves or seeds. So colobus monkeys, like red colobus, are specialized for eating leaves. And what's really neat about them is that they don't really have thumbs. And when you think of primates, you think of grasping hands and opposable thumbs, but colobus monkeys have mostly lost their thumbs. They're greatly reduced, and they're really colorful. Different species have different bits of red on them. Some have red on their back or on their stomach or on their um, their legs or their head, and they have really f- funny hairdos and interesting hairdos, uh, depending on what species <laughs> that you're you're studying. 
but um, you know, when you see them, sometimes they're with other primate species and they're all calling together and it's just kind of this wonderful symphony of, of primate sounds in the forest that you're surrounded by. Can you imitate that a little? Oh, I can make some 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 monkey calls. Yeah. So the red colobus are these high pitched uh, squeaking and barking, like, and then um, the male mangabe makes um, a loud call, like a chow chow, and then the putty nose monkey might go ow ow. And so a lot of these monkey species, they have the males make these loud calls. Uh, or long calls. So when a predator is around, they'll call, and the male will call, and then all the others might start calling, but then they realize there's some trouble, and so they might go really quiet, and then they hide, or they might flee. And red colobus monkeys, at least the one I studied uh, in Cameroon, they don't have this loud call, so they all just kind of chatter all the time. And they're a little, uh, I don't like to say this, but they're a little dumb when it comes to being hunted. Um, People uh, in West and Central Africa, they, they hunt wild animals for meat and for money. They sell the meat uh, in, in markets, in bushmeat markets. And red colobus get really hammered. Um, as I said, they, they occur in these large and often noisy groups, so they can be pretty easy to find. And um, other primate species will they'll make a call, they'll make a, an alarm call when a, when a hunter comes around, and then they'll, they'll hide, and then they'll eventually flee. Red colobus monkeys don't often do that. They often just kind of stare at you. You know, I'll be finding some red colobus in the forest and they'll see me and they'll start kind of threatening me with some calls, but they don't run away. They just kind of scream at me from the top of the trees. And all I'm thinking is run, you know, I could be a hunter. And so it's been documented across their range that hunting is, is, a, is one of the biggest problems for their populations. So it's easy to catch them if you're out hunting them, but are many people hunting them are many people really hungry for this meat? Um, yeah, so um, in Western Central Africa, uh, hunting is, is widespread in, in the rainforests, and people tend to have a preference for wild meat or bush meat over other kinds of meat. So um, most wild, wild animals, you know, bigger than a bread box or so, are, are hunted for their meat in Western Central Africa. And if you know, if you just stop in in any village or in a town at, at a market, you'll see this this bush meat for sale or, or being consumed. So there was one time when we were looking for we were surveying some primates in the in the park where I work in Cameroon, and we had to climb a mountain, and we were coming down the mountain, and we got a little lost, and we came down the mountain the wrong way, and all of our supplies were on the other side of the mountain, and so we got lost, and it was getting dark, and we finally just found a village. Uh, just outside the park. And so we kind of surprised them in the village. And, you know, the people there, they're, they're so generous and so wonderful. And they took us in, uh, no problem. They gave us a, a little some shelter to stay in. And we said, look, we have no food with us. Um, and they said, no problem. You can, you can have what we're eating. We'll, we'll share it with you. And it's really kind of them. And so we're in our, in our little, um, in our shelter and they, they give us uh, this stew. And I kind of start eating it and it smells a bit different than I'm, I'm used to. And it tastes a bit different. And so I'm, I'm eating the stew and I turn to my field assistant and I say, you know, what are we eating? And they say, well, I'm pretty sure we're eating monkey meat. And it was the kind of monkey called a drill monkey, which is actually quite endangered as well. And I thought, oh, OK, well, I'll, I'll eat around it then because um, I don't tend to eat a lot of bush meat. And I certainly try not to eat uh, monkey meat, but it was very kind of them. But it's just, you know, if you go into many of these villages, they're, they're often subsisting off of wild meat. How do we know how many red colobus monkeys there used to be to understand how endangered they are now? Well, yeah, it's, it's tough to say. We don't have a lot of records going too far back. So we can often just rely on off, sometimes what hunters tell us. And they might say, hey, 20 years ago, we would walk into the forest and not have to go very far and we would see red colobus. And now we have to trek for three days and maybe we don't even see any red colobus. And so that helps us to know that there used to be a lot more red colobus. And certainly in the past, if there were more habitat, if there was more forest, then there likely would have been more red colobus as well. And you can also count if you're, if you're surveying them in bushmeat markets. So a lot of the meat will end up in these markets in urban centers. And maybe 30 years ago, you would count a lot of red colobus monkeys in the markets. And then today you would count very few, again, suggestive that their populations have declined in the forest. You've helped come up with a red colobus conservation action plan to try to save them. Yes. What do you propose? 
Well, we propose a number of different things. So first, uh, first priority is to do more surveys. We need to find out where these red colobus are and how abundant they are and um, what are their threats. In addition to that, we want to try to help improve the protected areas that are already there. So like national parks, we want to improve their effectiveness. And we need to help create new protected areas where red colobus monkeys um, are found. We also want to work very closely with local communities and engage them more in conservation and train people to work in conservation and give them long-term jobs so many of these people uh, won't engage uh, in hunting as much but really um, work more in conservation. And we want to get governments more involved. At the end of the day, uh, it's these national governments that are going to have a huge impact and we want to encourage them to put more funding towards conservation and especially um, where red colobus monkeys are. We want to increase education and awareness of these monkeys and their habitats, both uh, in Africa and abroad. And um, those are the kind of the broader strategies that we're aiming to do. And then each red colobus species will have their own different priorities related to those broader strategies. What do you want to say to people who don't appreciate what we lose if these monkeys go extinct? Yeah, I mean, red colobus monkeys are representative of the plight of tropical rainforests uh, in Africa in general. I mean, they're one of, of many species, not any more special than any, any species. But because they're so vulnerable to hunting and because they're forest specialists, if you protect red colobus monkeys, you're going to protect so many other threatened species and threatened ecosystems. And these rainforests, they're the lungs of the earth. They're going to help us mitigate the impacts of climate change. People in these regions, um, these local communities, they rely on rainforests for so much of their livelihoods. And so rainforests are just some of the most important ecosystems in the world. And by protecting red colobus monkeys, you are also protecting these huge areas of rainforests in Africa. Have other primate species, to our knowledge, gone extinct? We haven't recorded uh, a primate extinction in probably uh, at least a few hundred, if not several hundred years. And there's one red colobus species called Miss Waldron's red colobus, which used to occur in Ghana and um, in Ivory Coast in West Africa. And in 2000, my colleagues, uh, they did a bunch of surveys in the late 1990s looking for this monkey, and they couldn't find it anywhere. And um, they declared it as probably extinct, and that was in 2000. And then hunters told uh, my colleagues, hey, I think we may have seen some red colobus, or uh, here's, a, here's a red colobus that I killed a few months back. But every time we go do surveys, we've done further surveys in mid-2000s, we can't find Miss Waldron's red colobus anymore. And so now the only place where it might be is this small forest in Ivory Coast, and it's a really swampy forest, so it's very difficult to survey. And my colleagues have been surveying their foot surveys, but also putting up camera traps on the tops of trees where these red colobus would be to see if we can capture any footage of these red colobus monkeys. And we've captured footage of other endangered primates, but so far, Miss Waldron's red colobus monkeys, we can't find. And so the first primate extinction in the last you know, few hundred, several hundred years might be this Wal Miss Waldron's red colobus monkey. Josh Linder is an anthropology professor at James Madison University. To help support the effort to protect the red colobus monkey, visit rewild.org. When the movie first came out in 1975, the great white shark with razor-sharp teeth and a taste for human flesh, otherwise known as Jaws, struck fear in theatergoers across the world. But for Francesco Ferretti, the movie sparked a lifelong passion for all things sharks. Now he's a marine biologist at Virginia Tech, and a few months ago he led an expedition to be the first to ever tag endangered great white sharks in the Mediterranean Sea. Francesco, you've been fascinated with sharks all your life. Did Jaws really first spark your interest? That's uh, that's very interesting. Like um, there is a lot of discussions in the field about the effect of jaws on shark conservation, and uh, and I have to say that jaws had uh, had a dual effect on a lot of, uh, on on people. On some people, they they scared them, and uh, they scared them to death. <laughs> and on other people, like including me. 
had uh, a reinforcing effect on uh, on uh, loving these uh, these animals and actually getting interested in these animals. It's interesting because on one hand, it led to such a fear of sharks that some people argue they were hunted to death. And yet you're saying it also spawned a great love of sharks in at least a, a good number of biologists, right? De- definitely, definitely. They, it increased the interest. The first time I saw the movie was while I was doing my, I think it was like my ninth grade or 10th grade. And I was thinking, oh, I would like to be a marine biologist like this guy. Right. And, uh, and um, yeah, it was, it was fascinating, definitely fascinating. Definitely, yeah, it was frightening at that time. But, um, but the more then I, I knew about shark and I, I increased my, uh, my understanding on shark, now I, I understand their value. I understand their importance in, o- in ocean ecosystems. So it was a priming. That movie had a priming effect. And then, uh, and then now I have a, I'm looking at them in a different ways with a more uh, scientific interest. Did you grow up on the coast of Italy near the water? Yes, I mean, relatively speaking, yes, uh, uh, but no, <laughs> because uh, like in Italy, it's very cl- you are close to the coast everywhere. It's a peninsula, so it's uh, I was living 25 minutes from the coast. In our perspective in Italy, that was far from the coast, but now that I'm living in Blacksburg, I say we were right on the coast. Um, and um, I, I grew up in Macerata, which is a small town in the central part of Italy, uh, a hilly region, very close to the coast, very close to the mountain, a beautiful place that, that people call the, uh, the new Tuscany. For beauty, how does it compare to where you are now in the Blue Ridge Mountains? I would say, so I, I tell my students and I tell also my, my colleagues that I see Virginia as uh, what my region would have been when the Romans were there, just because it's very similar and it's, uh, and it's very interesting because it's, uh, it's a, in a similar position in the East Coast, it's a central state, Virginia, and my region is a central region. And uh, the topography is very similar. So you have to substitute uh, the forests that we have here with the cultivated land that we have. So I imagine when the Romans were settling in these areas, uh, they were seeing a, a very similar environment as we are seeing right now uh, in, in Virginia. A few months ago, you were the lead investigator and scientific director of an expedition to track great whites in the Sicilian Channel. I had no idea there were great white sharks in the Mediterranean. Yes, so a lot, a lot of people didn't realize that there were white sharks in the Mediterranean. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, we came out with uh, the first synthesis of all historical sightings of white sharks in the Mediterranean Sea. And there were people tweeting me saying, I had no idea. I'm from England and come every, every year in the Mediterranean Sea for vacation. I had no idea that there were white sharks in the area. Right. In fact, the, the, uh, the Mediterranean white shark population is one of the six or seven populations in the, in the planet. And um, however, it's one of the least known. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the least known for several reasons. And one of the most important at the moment is because they are very scarce. We know in the past that they were widespread in the Mediterranean Sea in any sector. They were even pests to fishers. Uh, in fact, the, the Austrian government uh, during the, the Austrian em- Empire, he should bound this for fishers to kill white sharks because they were deemed to be interfering with fishing operations. But now they are very scarce and they are very scattered. And we can prove this firsthand uh, also from our expedition because of the hundreds of years of fishing exploitation and coastal development and, uh, and the many threats that the Mediterranean has for, for shark populations. Based on historical data, do you think that you can come up with a rough estimate of how many sharks were once either in the Sicilian Channel or the Mediterranean Sea? Well, that's uh, that's a one million dollar question. Yeah. Uh, that's what we are trying to understand. We are trying to understand how many sharks are left there. We understand from our previous analysis that these sharks went down uh, very rapidly in population abundance. With our statistics and the sightings we could collect from fishers and other ocean goers, we could come out with uh, 
trend estimates saying that in the last decades, they declined by more than 80%. Now this population is critically endangered, but the scary part is that we don't know how many are left. So it's imperative that we start monitoring the, the last individuals that are in the area to understand more about their ecology and their biology and to promote recovery programs. Were you able to tag any sharks this summer? No, we were not able. This is one of the painful uh, results of our uh, yeah. of our expedition. We were ready to tag them, but we understood that this population is scarcer than what we thought. In fact, this year, for some reason, only one siding came out from the Mediterranean. Usually you have uh, six, seven, ten sidings a year. For some reason, this year, there is only one siding coming from the region. And we we actually saw that there is a lot of, uh, firsthand, we saw the amount of fishing that is there. And it is scary because there are few individuals left. These few individuals are endangered and exposed to these uh, fishing activities. And so we need to act very fast and we need to find these last individuals to start tracking them. Is it true no great white shark has ever been tagged in that region? It is true. Yeah, it is true. Wow. We were we would like to be the we would like to put the first tag on a white shark in the Mediterranean Sea for the reasons I said uh, earlier. This population of white sharks may be very peculiar respect to other populations because in the Mediterranean Sea there are no seals and uh, and not a lot of marine mammals. There are marine mammals, but not in the abundance that there are in other sectors. And so we think that these white sharks are selected or used to prey on other items like bluefin tuna or uh, or dolphin carcasses. And so we totally do not understand how their history of selection in the Mediterranean Sea may be very peculiar respect to other white shark populations around the globe. You said something so significant that even though you weren't able to tag a great white, you really saw up close with fresh eyes just how much and how vast the fishing industry is. Yes, yes, totally. What did you see? What did you notice that you hadn't fully grasped before? So, so more than a decade ago, I, I published one of the first paper on the status of sharks in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. And in that paper, we showed that multiple large predatory sharks declined to underdetectable level. They were functionally eradicated by, by fisheries. We knew that the Mediterranean was one of the most dangerous places for sharks and other animals for fishing, one of the most exploited regions in the planet. But going there and seeing the amount of fishing and the traffic and the marine traffic related to fishing, it uh, was also was a different experience because first, uh, in some occasions, we were trying to deploy our gears and it was difficult to understand where we could deploy our gear without interfering with uh, gill nets in one spot or the operations of troll fishers in another spot or poor seiners in another spot. In the, in the Sicilian Channel, especially in the Pandelleria Banks, which is in the center of the Sicilian Channel, these are international waters that are very trafficked by multiple and multiple nations in the fishing for tunas and other, and other fish. I think there are more than 13 nations fishing in the area. So... so there is really no chance that if we don't do something about the conservation of these animals, we can save uh, white sharks and other sharks. How much do you fear that this population of great whites in the Mediterranean could become extinct? A lot. I, I fear a lot. And from these expeditions were, unfortunately, we didn't detect any animal directly. With eDNA, with environmental DNA, we detected they are still there. But uh, understanding and seeing firsthand the conditions and the fishings and, and, the, and the threats, uh, it makes me very worried about the status of this population. So that's why more than ever, next year we want to go again and, and next year we want to increase our effort. We want to ramp up uh, our effort and investment on being su successful to find these, uh, the, uh, these animals. Because, I mean, the chance of losing them can be very high. What's an easy first step, do you think, toward trying to save and grow the population of great whites in the Mediterranean? The easy first step is understanding more about their, their behavior and, uh, and definitely tagging 
these animals will give us lots of data about their spatial movement, but also their affinity to environmental variables like temperature, salinity. So we can build models to understand where they like to live and to understand where we may need to concentrate with our conservation effort. If we can demonstrate that the Sicilian Channel is a nursery area, then it's easy to trigger an international dialogue between Tunisia, Malta, Italy, and other interested countries to perhaps design marine protected areas or fisheries restricted zones that can uh, spare these animals, at least in, in their most critical life stage. But aren't you sort of up against the tourism industry and the fishing industry? Not really, because I would say that, um, first of all, having negative interaction with white sharks in the Mediterranean Sea is, is much less likely than winning even the most difficult and most rewarding lottery. Uh, <laughs> there's no chance that you can get a negative interaction with, the, with white sharks in the Mediterranean Sea at this level of populations. So even if we increase the population of white sharks, if people understand their behavior and understand their ecology, they can make uh, informed decision when, when approaching ocean use. And that's the same in, in many other places of, of the world where sharks are more abundant. If people is informed, if people understand where to go or where not to go when engaging in ocean activities, the risk of having a negative interactions with sharks is very minimal. Actually, I think having a more functional and, uh, and beautiful ecosystem may even boost the tourism in the area more than what it is boosted right now. At the moment, I'll tell you this, Sarah, now whenever I go in the Mediterranean Sea and I go diving in the Mediterranean Sea, I'm extremely depressed. The Mediterranean Sea is beautiful. It's, um, there are sparkling waters, very transparent water, very beautiful coastlines. You go underwater and there are beautiful underwater ecosystems. There are no fish. And when I say this, it's, it makes my heart just, uh, just sad because I'm seeing all this beauty and we have sacked all the treasures of the ocean. And so I would say now that a lot of people would be much more happy to go diving in the Mediterranean Sea and seeing lots of animals and, and a, a greater biodiversity, and that would boost a lot uh, many other ecosystem services that we can get from the ocean from there. Well, Francesco Ferretti, what a joy talking with you. Thank you very much, Sarah. Francesco Ferretti is a lifetime marine biologist at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. The bald eagle has been the national bird of the United States since 1782, but just a few decades ago, it was on the brink of extinction. Brian Watts is director of the Center for Conservation Biology at William & Mary. He's been monitoring the bald eagle population in the Chesapeake Bay for 30 years, and he says the bald eagle is one of the biggest success stories in the history of conservation. Brian, for 30 years, you and the A-team have been looking for bald eagles in the Chesapeake Bay region. Tell me about the A-team. Who are you? Yes, myself, Brian Watts, uh, Mitchell Bird, who longtime professor and eagle biologist in the region. Um, Mitchell's now long retired. He's 93 this year. And our pilot, Captain Fuzzo, Captain Fuzzo is retired Air Force. Um, he's flown all kinds of planes all over since the 1950s. So we've been together for a long time surveying eagles in the lower Chesapeake. What kind of plane do you go up in and how low do you fly? Yeah, we fly in a Cessna 172. Um, when we do the primary survey, which usually happens in March, uh, we fly up and down all the creeks and rivers at about 300 feet. Uh, we come back in April to check on how many young are in the nests, and we'll drop down to each nest at that time and look right in and count the, the number of young. So we drop right down to tree level. Are there moments when somebody lets out a little cry of joy, 
either at spotting a particular nest or a new nest or something unusual? Yeah, there, there's always exciting times, you know, to come up on a nest and you expect to see an eagle and you may see a, a goose or an owl or something else in the nest, maybe a raccoon that's in a, a burrow. He's burrowed <laughs> into the nest and there may have young ones that are looking out um, and you don't expect it. So, yeah, always exciting times uh, in the air. You know, I love the names of Virginia's river. So many are named by native Virginians. You have the Chickahominy and the Mattapanai and the Pamunkey and all kinds of Indian river names. Don't you love that? Yeah, it's just a, the lower Chesapeake is such a great place, the Rappahannock. And the Chickahominy uh, is just a real eagle concentration area. There are places where we have multiple eagle nests where the females can sit incubating, looking eyeball to eyeball. The densities are just phenomenal there. Uh, during the winter, when the eagles take up laying eggs, um, it's just full of waterfowl in the winter. So it's just a great place for eagles. How endangered were the bald eagles when you joined the A-team or when you started doing this mapping? Yeah, the bald eagle population in the larger Chesapeake Bay was down to about 60 pairs by 1970 or so. At that time, the James River, including the Chickahominy, was really in desperate straits. Um, the James River only produced three chicks over an 11-year period, and there was a five-year period in the 1970s where there were no known breeding pairs on the James. We have just seen a tremendous revival of eagles here on the James and elsewhere in the Chesapeake. The Chesapeake Bay now has over 3,000 pairs, and the James River this year had over 350 pairs. So that's up from zero to 350 in a fairly short period of time. Why only three chicks on the James? Was that due to pesticides? Yes, the, the James obviously supported a large population um, back in the 1930s onward until DDT was introduced into uh, the James. And so by the time we get to the early 1960s, the population was in a death spiral. The population wasn't producing enough young to replace adult mortality. And so it was ratcheting down year over year. What was DDT doing to eagles? DDT inhibits a hormone that's responsible for calcium deposition in the egg, and so it was causing females to lay soft-shelled eggs. They were breaking in the nest, and it was also likely killing adults. In 1963, there was an adult picked up under a nest on Jamestown Island on the James River and that bird was in convulsions and later died and later was determined to have died from DDT poisoning. There were even problems in the centuries before DDT. Tell me a little bit about what was wiping out eagles then. Yeah, I mean, when you look back in time, there was a, a whole parade of insults to eagles, um, beginning really with colonial expansion and deforestation uh, within this region and elsewhere, New England, for example. And then when you get to about 1850, the widespread availability of firearms became a factor. Uh, people began to shoot eagles uh, more regularly. Uh, the fishermen considered them competitors for fish. Farmers considered them predators on their chickens and pigs. Uh, fur trappers had problems with them taking muskrats from their traps. And so there was just a sentiment that from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, that people didn't welcome eagles and shot them on sight. Um, they would shoot chicks from nests and they would shoot adults for sport, but also because they felt like that they were competitors. So here you are going out year after year for about 30 years with Captain Fuzzo, the pilot, and Mitchell Bird, the veteran birder. At what point did you start to realize, hey, they're coming back? Yeah, it has been remarkable to see. Uh, the population really began to gain momentum through the 1980s. And by the time we reached the late 1990s, we had reached the recovery goal for the Chesapeake Bay. The Fish and Wildlife Service recovery team established an objective of 300 breeding pairs for the Chesapeake Bay. And we reached that by the mid-1990s. Now we're at 10 times that amount. What, 3,000 pairs? Yeah, 3,000 pairs. The numbers continued to build. We reached a high in productivity in the late 1990s. 
and we've seen a retracing of that productivity. It's declined since about 2000, and it continues to decline. Whoa, it's been declining in recent decades? Yes, and that's one of the more interesting stories, what we refer to as the final chapter of recovery, and that is that once we reached the late 1990s, Uh, The population was growing exponentially, and we began to see a slow down, but adults were still producing a tremendous number of young. What was happening is the population began to run out of space, and so we created this large population of floaters, adult-age birds that don't have anywhere to breed, and those birds were floating and putting pressure on the territory holders, and so We have this um, generational fight between territory holders and young floaters, um, adult age birds. And um, that has really caused a really interesting shift in behavior. Eagles have different jobs. The female stays typically on the nest. She's 30% larger and dominant. She really rules the nest. The male is the provider and he goes out and forages and brings back food. When we had the appearance of the floaters on the scene, the male is then torn between going out and providing for the young and defending the nest from intruders. And so he began to spend more time at the nest defending, and so that's less food for the young. And what we've seen over time is an increase in failures, but also a reduction in the average brood size. Have you seen fights between floaters and males guarding nests? Uh, Many, many fights. So it used to be in the the 90s when production was so high that you would rarely see the male at the nest. He was off foraging. Now he's there at the nest most of the time, and he is escorting birds out of the area repeatedly. And this time of year, so our eagles here in the bay begin to take up house now. They repair their nests and they're more attentive to the territory. Now, if you look in the air almost anywhere in the bay and just about any time of day, you'll see adults streaming across the sky. They're chasing and fighting for space. And so particularly now until about early March, If you pay attention, you'll hear them cackling overhead, and if you look up, you'll typically see one adult chasing another, and that chasing activity goes on for months up until the time um, that they have eggs and young. How do you run out of space for eagle nests? Where do they love to build nests, and where have they adapted to build nests, and how would you ever run out as long as you've got shoreline for eagles to hunt and fish? Yeah, the eagles defend a a territory. Here in the bay, it's some of the smallest territories throughout the range, and that is a reflection of just how productive the bay is. There's just so much food available here in the bay that they only require a small territory, but they still defend those areas. And so there's only so many territories that you can fit along the shoreline. The dogma was that an eagle would require uh, one mile of shoreline historically. That's what we thought. But the Chesapeake eagles and elsewhere have proven that not to be the case. Uh, We have nests now that are uh, 150 meters away from each other. So they're really packing in tightly. But there's a limit to that. How do you feel about the number of breeding pairs going from 3,000 to 2,000 because of fights over territory. Are you satisfied with that? Or are you still alarmed at spreading development? Yeah, you know, we used to be much more concerned, I think, in the 1990s about the implications of continued development within the Chesapeake Bay watershed. I think in more recent years, um, I feel that eagles are increasingly adapting to our presence There are always going to be issues that we have to be vigilant about and that we have to monitor new contaminants, other issues um, that emerge. But I really feel like our population at this point in time is so robust um, and so resilient that I don't see it going away anytime soon. I think if you're an eagle person like some of us are, uh, we're in a golden age. We haven't seen this many eagles um, throughout the U.S., since colonial times, and we may not have had the population size that we currently have because humans have made water features across the continent, so eagles are breeding in places that they didn't historically. What do you think accounts for the phenomenal success 
of bringing the eagle back from almost extinction. Yeah, you know, that is one of the most satisfying things about the recovery, and that is that eagles have recovered not because of the conservation community, um, but because of the American public. We decided um, back in the 1960s during the sort of DDT period that we truly valued eagles and we didn't want them to go down to extinction. And so there were two key pieces of legislation that happened during that time. One is that we banned DDT and light compounds in 1972. And in 1973, uh, we passed the Endangered Species Act. Those two decisions really set the stage for the recovery that we enjoy today. And so the most satisfying and gratifying part of the recovery is that it's proof that we can work together to solve large environmental problems. At its essence, conservation is really us reaching out to another species to change their future. We did that with bald eagles. We changed the trajectory of an entire species. And looking back, it's really one of the, the biggest lasting messages of um, the eagle recovery. We can work together to solve these things. We did that. That was Brian Watts. He's the Mitchell A. Bird Research Professor of Conservation Biology and Director of the Center for Conservation Biology at William & Mary. In the small island nation of Sri Lanka, elephants are considered sacred animals, but Sujan Henkanategadira says the rich and powerful are illegally capturing wild and critically endangered elephants to keep as symbols of wealth He and a team of activists and scientists are working to enact government reform to ensure the long-term survival of these gentle giants. Sujan is a biology professor at Longwood University. Sujan, you grew up in Sri Lanka. What did elephants mean to you as a child? Did you see very many? Uh, Yes, so it's part of our life. It's part of the Sri Lankan culture. In major temples, both uh, Buddhist and Hindu, they own elephants. So in Sri Lanka, one of the, the most sacred places is the, the temple of Tooth Relic of Buddha. They do several religious parades every year and they use a lot of elephants. It's been happening for hundreds of years, so it's part of the tradition. And these elephants are dressed up. They are very sacred animals. Sacred or just traditional? I mean, are they presumed to have special being? Uh, Yes. So in temples, these animals are sacred. Typically, they get treated very well. But although it's we've been practicing this for millennia, things are changing because elephants are an endangered species now. There are some laws to keep them safe. But at the same time, both temples and some rich people, they keep elephants because it's a symbol of their wealth. Most rich people, they have like dedicated staff. Even in the temple, they have dedicated staff to take care of the elephants. That's the way it's been for hundreds of years. How large is Sri Lanka? And about how large is the size of the elephant population there? And these are Asian elephants, right? That's right. So Sri Lanka is a small island nation. The entire country is smaller than the state of Virginia. Now let's imagine adding 6,000 wild elephants and 22 million people into that very limited landmass. And I think you can imagine all the conflicts that would arise from that uh, situation. How many of those elephants are wild, would you guess? Uh, so in Sri Lanka, the, the, the latest estimate is about 6,000 wild elephants. Huh. How do you have 6,000 wild elephants surviving alongside 22 million people? Yeah, so that's the situation. So, And, and also, 60% of Sri Lankan land is the range of elephants. But at the same time, oh. about 70% of elephants' range is occupied by people. So human-elephant conflict is something very serious in Sri Lanka right now. That's the root cause for all these conflicts. How big is that problem, this illegal elephant trade, the capturing of young elephants in the wild so that the rich and powerful can have them? Until recently, we did not know much about the extent of this trade. 
our investigation was the the first investigation into this matter it's a little fraction compared to all the deaths it's like 5% but this is just the tip of the iceberg because we really don't know the 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 real extent of this criminal activity uh, because they have wide network and these smugglers are connected with politicians and people of power and also from the other end they are connected with the wildlife officers park officers and we are getting just a fraction of information but the the real story is much bigger than this elephants are huge how do smugglers secretly capture such a large and protected animal that's right right now based on our data they are mainly aiming at the young elephants and juveniles less than 5 years old but still these guys are big so sometimes they would kill the mother and capture the baby elephants sometimes they sedate the baby elephants and then uh, we've heard that they've been using big suvs and also trucks to transport these animals typically they would capture these animals in a national park or a, a wildlife park and we've heard that they are transporting these animals mainly at night is the idea that there's a lot of money to be had by the people who capture and arrange for the capture of the elephants uh yeah that's the plan as of now they sell these elephants uh somewhere between 40,000 to 70,000 US dollars give me a feeling for why let's say a wealthy sri lankan would want elephants and how that individual would keep them and display them so it's a symbol of their wealth the wealth gap in sri lanka is it's enormous so there's only like a, a fraction of people who can afford elephants and like welfare of elephants uh, but at the same time there are some like traditional wealthy people and they've been maintaining elephant populations captive elephant populations historically of course people captured some from wild but the the trend is getting out of control now are there laws against the smuggling of these babies in the wild and even if there are laws do people really care that much because this idea of the rich and powerful owning elephants has just been a thing for so long so there's plenty of law so i mean it's an endangered species uh, under some international laws as well as uh, the local law there's like enough law to protect this animal and also to discourage the illegal smuggling of elephants from wild but the problem is the enforcement these smugglers they are well connected with some corrupted wildlife officers so the wildlife officers actually help them f- for bribes i guess to register these wild caught elephants as captively bred elephants what's your worst fear about this smuggling continuing relatively unchecked what is your fear for the asian elephant population of sri lanka so i i mean these animals are majestic animals they are smart they have families they have emotions when you watch elephants you actually feel it you you can see i mean they are just like us they take care of their kids and they have friends they communicate with each other they love each other so i think it's morally very wrong to smuggle a wild elephant and just selling it to somebody else that animal would be in a solitary state for the entire life so it's really hard to see how these people are separating these babies from their mothers so sometimes they kill the mother uh, and grab the baby sometimes they sedate the baby and also most of these babies we we think that they don't make it to the new owner some of these animals are like mostly it's our males the changes of sex ratio can impact the the long run of the population given all the other threats like hunting elephants killing elephants wildlife trade habitat loss the future of asian elephants in sri lanka is it's not bright you and your team have come up with some recommendations on how to help conserve and save the elephants in sri lanka 
What do you think can be done to protect these gentle giants? Uh, our recommendations are mainly to uh, minimize the impact of illegal trade. So the first one that we recommended was to speed up the, the uh, judiciary process against these uh, smugglers. And the second one was take immediate action against those corrupted officers at the, the wildlife conservation department. And also, the I think the biggest challenge is we do not have an effective national policy about these captive elephants. At the same time, there are international uh, standards. So we were basically trying to encourage the government to adopt those standards. Those were the main recommendations came out of our study. Right now, the situation is very sensitive and it's not going to the right direction. But we, we are very happy that I have a, a team of activists and scientists and I'm, I'm trying my best to do some positive change and eventually it may translate into action and we may be able to do something positive to conserve these gentle giants. Well, Sue John, thank you for all you're doing and thanks for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much, Sarah. Sue John Henkanatekadera is a biology professor at Longwood University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.